I think this idea that plastic is a material that's designed to last forever and we make things that are designed to be used once and thrown away, that often chimes with people because it's something they've never thought of before. But once you do look at it like that, you kind of think, oh, yeah, that's just makes no sense. Hello, friends. Hope that you are all having a wonderful day from wherever it is that you are listening to my voice. This conversation is with Emily Penn. Emily has organized the largest ever community-led waste cleanup from a tiny Tongan island trawled from microplastics on an ocean voyage through the Arctic Northwest Passage, rounded the planet on the record-breaking biofueled boat Earthrace, and worked on a sailing cargo ship trading Western supplies for coconuts. Emily splits her time between running Expedition, that's with two X's, a series of all-female voyages which focus on the relationship between plastics, toxins, and female health, and working to solve the ocean plastic issue with Parlay for the Oceans and other corporate clients. Prior to this, Emily co-founded Pangea Explorations to enable scientists, filmmakers, and everyday people to gain access to the most remote parts of our planet, collecting data on global issues, and along the way, discovered the previously unknown oceanic gyres, huge areas of plastic pollution accumulation. Emily was honored with the Fitzroy Award at the 2016 Ocean Awards and is also the youngest and only female recipient of both the Yacht Master of the Year, awarded by HRH Princess Royal, and the Sea Master of the Year Award. She is a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and in 2017 was elected as a member of the Cordon Rogue Club. This conversation was recorded over the phone, um, so it's interview style, and you will get to dive deep into the world of plastic pollution, which Emily knows a whole lot about. So, without further ado, please welcome Emily Penn. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Emily, what do you do when someone asks you what you do? It's a tricky question. Um, so at the moment, I'm using the term ocean advocate because so much of what I do, it's all about really speaking up for the oceans and um, looking at the changes that are currently happening to our seas um, and what we can actually do about changing that back in a positive way um, so that we can kind of protect the health of our ocean. What has been particularly perking your interest lately? Um, so plastics has been my big focus, really. Um, so looking at this idea of plastic kind of leaving land, going out into the middle of the ocean and then moving thousands of miles around our world um, to a new place where it then usually ends up on a beach somewhere else and the impacts that's having on our environment um, and on us as human beings. How do plastics make their way from land to the ocean? So it's mostly down streams and drains um, that plastic makes its way down and also through sewers and things into our rivers. And ultimately, all of our rivers, they run downhill and everything leads to the ocean. Um, so about 80% of the plastic that we're finding at sea, it does actually, it comes from land. Um, it comes from, you know, cities that have waste management systems that deal with a lot of that waste that goes to landfill. But it's amazing how much of it does escape. And then some parts of the world that don't have any waste management um, most of that plastic ends up going down and ending up in the ocean. What would you say are the so so correct me if I'm wrong here, but waste management systems are a big crux of this story. 
how we deal with the plastics and how much of that will ultimately end up in the ocean or potentially be able to be repurposed. Yeah, that is definitely a big part of it. Although perhaps later on we can discuss an even more preventative step so that we aren't relying on waste management systems in the first place. But yeah, you're right. The the reason at the moment so much of that plastic is getting out there is because, um, yeah, we, we don't capture that plastic properly on land um, and it ends up as waste and goes into the sea. What do most waste management facilities do with plastic when I throw it into the blue bin? Yeah, so when you do recycle your plastic, um, a lot of it does end up going to, to get turned into other things. But one of the challenges we have with plastic is it's really just a word that we give to hundreds of different materials. And you've probably noticed different bits of plastic have different numbers in a little triangle on the back of them. Um, and so that's basically telling you the type of plastic it is. And at the moment, only really number one PET and number two HDPE are the two types of plastic that are widely recycled around the world. The other ones, they might get saved somewhere, um, it, you know, probably in a hole in the ground, but in a particular hole in the ground that they can be dug up and used in the future. But a lot of the plastic just ends up going straight into landfill. And that's usually because it's either in a way that it's either too dirty and, um, you know, it's got too much contamination that it can't be recycled or it's too muddled up with other types of materials. So some objects we use, like, like a toothbrush, for example, has got maybe three or four different types of plastic all stuck together. And it's really expensive and time consuming recycling companies to try and pull those objects apart to recycle them. Um, so, so that's one reason, as well as the contamination issue, that really a relatively low percentage of that plastic that you think you're recycling actually ends up getting made into something else. And when it does get made into something else, it's unlikely your plastic bottle has got been turned back into a plastic bottle but it might have been turned into a drain pipe or a carpet or something that probably only still has one more life before it then ends up in the dump. Okay, so typically plastics will move down a life cycle even if they are uh, recycled. They won't be recycled into the same product. Exactly, yeah. Okay, and are plastics separated? Because I throw all of my shit into the blue bin. I throw my yogurt container in, or I'll throw my plastic bottle, or my bag. It all goes into the same bin. Mm -hmm. So does someone typically in the United States separate that? And then, oh, the bag can be repurposed into some shorts, or the bottle can be repurposed into... Uh, a drain pipe how does that do, do you know and it's okay if i know that we're getting very granular here but i'm just trying to understand how this whole thing yeah. works do you no, know so how it'll... that actually works it will definitely vary country to country and then even within country, you know, state to state or county to county, you know, have different ways that they actually collect and sort their waste and, and then where it goes afterwards. Um, but yeah, at some point, whether that's happening in country or whether your waste is all getting shipped somewhere and then it's happening at the other end, um, there is going to at some point have to be a sorting process okay. that sorts all those different types of plastic out because if you try and mix two different types of plastic together and melt them down, you're going to end up with a very poor quality product that there's not many uses for. Gotcha. Um, and so this is one of the hardest things. We have so many different types of plastic and we have these different types because they give us all these different properties or, um, you know, the people who are doing marketing think that like this nice blue, slightly squeezy, different texture bottle is going to be better for selling their products. But actually then it makes it almost impossible to recycle it. Um, so it's a bit of a, a challenge between <laughs> how you, you market your products and then actually designing so that that material has a, a second life afterwards. Right. I would imagine that that is uh, an interesting aspect of, of marketing that companies are needing to deal with because it's it, plastic has kind of crept its way into our life in strange, very um, surreptitious ways. I was at the market the other day and I was getting a carton of milk and uh, I was thinking about this interview coming up and 
I noticed that on the milk, where when I was a kid, you used to just crack it open with the carton, it now has a little plastic, uh, a mm-hmm. little plastic container on it. I was like, when did that happen? When, when <laughs> did that happen? I didn't see that happen. And why just... can't I buy the one without it? Right. <laughs> and it's not there. <laughs> okay, so um, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but you have seen the problem of plastics um, in a different way than most people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I first discovered this issue um, when I was 21. I had the chance to take a boat around the world from England to Australia and across the Pacific Ocean and basically woke up in the night hearing this sound on the hull of the boat. And we came up on deck to find that we were surrounded by plastic in the middle of the ocean. And at that point, we were over a thousand miles from the nearest land. And yet there was this amazing amount of, of waste, you know, evidence of human life in the water. And for me, that was that moment where I just thought, this is so wrong. You know, it just didn't make any sense why there was a toothbrush floating around the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And um, so it was from there that I then started learning more about the problem and, and, and why that problem even exists. And that's when I started to, yeah, to learn about this material plastic, a, a material that's designed to last forever. And then we go and use it for things that are designed to be used once and then thrown away. And as a result of that and the challenge that we have for recycling that plastic, there's just so much waste material that doesn't have any use or any value. Um, And so ultimately, a lot of it ends up at sea. Um, So I kind of delved into to learning more about that. And then that took me on on my kind of next decade mission, really, um, which was to go and explore these gyres, which are the accumulation zones where much of this plastic ends up once it enters our seas. Okay. And tell me a bit more about gyres. So the gyres are basically, um, because our planet is spinning and it creates this Coriolis effect, this great big rotating system of currents around our planet. And up in the northern hemisphere, we have two big clockwise rotations in the North Pacific and the North Atlantic. And then in the southern hemisphere oceans, a great big anti-clockwise rotation. And in the middle of these fast rotating currents, the water's really calm. And it's there that anything, whether it's a piece of seaweed or a piece of plastic, will want to move towards this calm patch. And these patches are actually quite big. They're uh, maybe a thousand or more miles wide, you know, these vast, vast areas. Those are those hotspots that we've been going to, to actually try and quantify the amount of plastic that's ending up in the ocean. How do you quantify the amount of plastic that's ending up in the ocean? So this is the challenge. You go out there and, you know, first we sort of started spotting these areas um, where we could see these bits of plastic, but quickly realized that the plastic actually breaks down into fragments, what we call microplastics, uh, generally anything smaller than five millimeters. And um, out there where it all kind of accumulates, we find uh, a super really of these little fragments of plastic on the surface of the ocean and the way we measure that is using something called a mantatrol um, which is basically a, um, a net a very fine mesh net that's rigged up to float along the surface of the ocean um, and capture a sample of anything that's floating on the surface and um, the organic matter but also these microplastic fibers um, and, and little fragments. And then we bring that back on board um, and then we can count and weigh the amount of plastic in a certain area of ocean. Um, and if you do that enough times in different parts of the ocean, um, in the middle of where we expect these gyres to be, but also in the areas where there's current, um, you can build up a picture um, of, of how much plastic um, as an approximation is floating on the surface. 
And do many uh, fish and um, marine organisms spend their time in the gyres? So we we definitely find fish uh, in these areas. And what we now know about the gyres is that it's not like it's one spot somewhere in the world, but actually we're now seeing plastic all over the planet, um, from the middle of these gyres, but also to the Arctic and Antarctica. And um, it's more like a fine soup of plastic that just varies in concentration depending on where you are. So, yes, absolutely, there's fish and all sorts of other organic matter um, in the same place as all this plastic. Have you been up to the Arctic? Yes, I have. Tell me about that trip. So we sailed from Greenland to Alaska through what's called the Northwest Canada and it's a series of little passages between the land that are actually frozen for most of the year and then usually a passage emerges um, for maybe a week or maximum a month um, in the middle of the summer Um, and so this has been in the news in the last couple of years because actually it's becoming easier and easier to sail through this passage that once you could never sail through um, because of that that sort of warming that we're now experiencing. Um, so in 2014, we sailed through to, to look for plastics. Um, and so we trawled with this manta trawl throughout that Northwest Passage. Um, and unbelievably, even though we were in water that was only unfrozen for a few weeks of the year, we were still finding these little fragments of plastic and also a lot of microfibers um, so fibers that have probably come off clothing or material at some point and ended up in the sea, um, making their way up to the Arctic as well. And you've also probably heard about the microbeads, yes. um, which the US successfully banned. And now the UK are, are following suit, which is great. Um, but yeah, the, so starting maybe with microbeads, um, these are these tiny little bits of plastic that are in a lot of cosmetics um, and cleaning pr products. And you're literally in one tube of face scrub like one of these exfoliating face scrubs you might have two to three million of these microbeads i mean that they're, they're tiny you can you can barely feel them um but they give that scrub that kind of exfoliating property and so those are tiny bits of plastic um and the reason there's been quite a lot of traction around this issue um i believe is because there's kind of no excuse for it. The, whoever designed and made that product with bits of plastic in, that plastic was only ever designed to end up in one place, and that's the ocean. You know, it washes down your plug hole as you wash it off your body, um, and, and it runs into the sea, and so there's nothing that kind of can stop and trap it. Um, so the ban of those has been quite successful. But other things like water bottles and plastic bags, I think, have been harder to ban because um, it's very easy for the people who make them to turn around and say, well, they shouldn't end up in the ocean. You know, you should just have better waste management. Right. Um, and it's easy to kind of pass the blame. Right, right, right. It's that seems like that could be an easy uh, PR <clears throat> response and say, look, it's not our fault. You should mm. you should be throwing it in the blue bin. Yeah, exactly. And point the finger at the consumer rather than the company. Okay. Um, so that's why I think microbeads has kind of gone through pretty quickly um, in terms of legislation. Uh, because it just, you know, really doesn't make any sense to make products that way. Let's continue to follow the story of plastics beyond just the ocean. What is the issue beyond um, the beauty aspect um, that people don't want to think about an ocean that's full of plastic? What are the environmental and health effects of the current situation that we're running into now? Sure. Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, um, we yeah, we see the plastic kind of going out there and then it can affect um, a lot of the marine environment um, and and the animals that live in it and the different ways it affects them. Um, some it's kind of more obvious. It's the bigger bits of plastic um, that can get them entangled. And you, you've probably seen pictures at some point of um, a turtle with a straw stuck up its nose or a shark that's trapped in 
in a ghost fishing net um, or a seal that's got um, some sort of like ring of plastic around its neck and unable to kind of break it as it grows. Um, And those are kind of some quite distressing images that sort of show that very man-made plastic against nature. Um, And then we also see what's happening to the albatross um, where they're mistaking plastic for food um, and then they end up getting a stomach full of plastic um, so don't survive as well. And so so we see the sort of the more physical impact that it's having on our marine life. But then what we've been looking at more recently is the slightly more subtle impact that we don't know that much about at the moment. But it's the fact that a lot of these small particles of plastic are getting into the food chain. So they're being mistaken for food, particularly by fish, even small fish, and even getting into the um, plankton as well and into um, seafood uh, that we eat. And and carrying these basically small pieces of plastic and the toxics that are used in the manufacturing process, um, you know, with them up that food chain. Um, and so we're kind of exploring that issue at the moment. And it's not so much that the um, the plastic might find its way onto our plate, <laughs> although that's definitely um, in something like a, a mussel um, or another type of shell that you might eat, um, uh, definitely a high kind of probability where you eat the whole of the um, organism. But if you're eating just sort of the tissue of a fish, the fillet, you wouldn't expect to find a piece of plastic in there. Obviously, it would end up in the stomach that you don't eat. Um, But what we are looking at is um, some of the chemicals that are used in that process of making plastic and also other various pesticides and toxic chemicals that are in our environment that seem to find their way into the fish um, and looking at the impact that those chemicals might have um, on us. And we, we know that that there's out there, there's these chemicals that are carcinogens leading to cancer. They are endocrine disruptors that mimic our hormones and change the way chemical messages are sent around our bodies. Um, So we know there's chemicals that have big impacts. And what we're really trying to work out right now is, you know, how serious is the problem and, and is this pollution in the ocean also feeding back to us? Do you know any of the main chemicals that are typically used in plastics that are particularly dangerous that you're looking at right now? Yeah, so the main one is the phthalates, um, and they basically um, make the plastic more sort of plastic, if you know what I mean, like more um, stretchy and um, more of a kind of fluid um, material. And um Give, give them those properties. Um, and so those are one of the main chemicals that we're finding. There was also BPA, um, which you might remember a few years ago was was big in the news. And now you'll see a lot of plastic that actually puts on the label BPA free. What is, um, yeah, I, I uh, didn't pay attention to the BPA story nearly <laughs> as much as I should have. Tell me why that was such a big issue. Yeah, so that's basically a chemical. Um, they were partly finding that in um, things like uh, dummies or babies' bottles, you know, things that kind of go have direct um, contact with you. Um, and also um, water bottles or uh, the inside of where food is being stored, like in a can or something. Um, and it's this chemical, bisphenol A, um, in the plastic. And um, it's basically known to, to disrupt our hormones. Um, and so while it's a chemical that won't stay inside your body forever, if it comes into your body at a time when, um, for example, going through puberty or if you're pregnant um, or if you're a young baby and you've got a lot of development going on in your body, therefore a lot of hormones um, driving that development, um, then those are particular times when you don't want that um, bisphenol A inhibiting the movement of those hormones around your body um, because it can lead to, to issues in that development. So what's the, um, what's the main research that you're doing now on these um, small plastics that are making their way into human bodies? Where is most of that science occurring today? 
Yeah, so um, we're really looking to see if there's a pathway between what's in our oceans and then what's getting into our bodies. Because one thing that we already do know, um, actually a few years ago I found this out for myself, um, I wanted to know if these chemicals that we're finding in our environment are even getting into us to even know if this is something we need to worry about. And so working with the United Nations, we actually tested my blood for 35 chemicals that are known to be toxic to humans and are therefore banned by the United Nations. And of those 35 chemicals, we found 29 of them in my body. And now this for me was just, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. I have sort of thought that I'd lived a fairly wholesome life, you know, with uh, avoiding, um, you know, kind of nasty things in my body and grew up on um, lots of fresh fruit and veg from the garden. Um, and so to know that I've got all these chemicals in me, um, you know, did sort of make me want to ask a lot more questions as to how they're getting in us. And um, a lot of them we get from direct contact. So I was just talking about um, BPA. And so th those are a lot of examples of direct contact when you're actually using that water bottle that the BPA is already in. Um, and the same with a lot of these pesticides or flame retardant chemicals um, that are on our bed sheets that we sleep in every night. You know, those are all forms of direct contact. But, but now what we're trying to work out is also the fact that so many of these chemicals also end up as pollutants. Are we also getting them through that channel as well, through things like the fish that we eat? And that's the bit that we don't really know yet that we've been trying to find out. Right. And regarding plastic water bottles, are there any um, dangerous chemicals that can leach out of a plastic water bottle into your system? So BPA was one that was, yeah, proved to be having a negative effect. And that's why you'll see so many things now that say BPA free and, and actually it just not being used. If a plastic water bottle doesn't say that it has BPA in it, does that mean that it has BPA in it? So not necessarily at all. And there has been quite a big effort now to get rid of BPA out of anything that you actually consume directly, um, such as, you know, drinking some drinking water. Um, but it, it is hard to know. And to be honest, I, I don't really know the answer. And it changes country by country um, as to whether there's a risk. I do know if you keep using a disposable water bottle several times in a row, um, then yes, you're going to get as it, as that plastic kind of um, wears away a little bit. Um, you're going to be getting some of that plastic and chemicals into you when you drink from it. Um, and likewise, if you store um, water in plastic in bright sun or in a warm area, um, then some of that plastic and the chemicals will kind of go into the water. Um, but whether if you you know have a nice chilled bottle of water that you use once and then throw it away, I don't know. Right. Do you, you shouldn't do it anyway. <laughs> so, so do you think that the test that you did on yourself with the United Nations is specific enough to plastics that you can make that uh, argument that it's because of the plastics in our ecosystem that these chemicals have leached into your body? Or do you think no, that... No, not at all. It seems like it's... No. Okay. Yeah, there's many, many different ways that those chemicals come into our body, which is also what makes it such a big challenge because there's so many variables and we come into contact with so many different toxic chemicals um, in our lifetime that it's really, really hard to know where they've come from and how they've got into us, what that pathway was. And it's very hard to know what they will cause in our body, mostly because you've got um, hundreds of different toxic chemicals in your body um, at any one time that, you know, are sort of designed to be there. Um, right. So what and so, no, it's, it's a challenge. Yeah. So what are you looking to do with that uh, study that you where you were able to test the chemicals on your body? Where do you hope the messaging goes with that? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a lot that we can learn from that. There's some interesting patterns that you can see if that study is done 
you know, enough globally, you can then start to see themes within countries or states, for example, um, states that have much higher laws on um, making sure that there's lots of flame retardant chemicals on sofas and furnishings, you actually then find the people who live in those countries um, have more inside their bodies. Um, and so you can sort of see how that culture then reflects um, on the people who live in it um, in terms of their body burden or their toxic footprint. Um, so that that sort of can tell us some really interesting things. But I mean, for us doing it, we were using it more as a storytelling tool to say, actually, this is something that we need to learn more about because we don't know enough at the moment. And we know that it is having an impact on us. And at the moment, the levels of chemicals we have inside us aren't at an alarmingly high level that we need to be immediately concerned about our health. But for me, it's a very scary indicator that actually those chemicals are getting inside us and we need to do something now to stop that getting any worse. Yeah, especially for people at different at specific times in their lives, whether it's a woman exactly. who's pregnant or a kid going through puberty. Yeah, and we're already told that we shouldn't eat um, fish from the top of the food chain when we're pregnant um, because of the levels of mercury um, in that fish. So we already know that these pollutants in our environment are actually at risk. Uh, you know, we're at risk of them. Can you speak to some of the um, the best examples of solutions taking place in states or countries and the countries that um, are some of the biggest perpetrators of this plastic that's making its way into the ocean? Sure. Yeah. Um, in terms of maybe start with your second question first and then move on to the solutions. In terms of the countries that are the biggest perpetrators, I wouldn't like to point the finger too much in that what we know is um, a lot of the developing nations, they are definitely contributing more plastic to the ocean than developed. Um mostly because of, of lack of waste management practices and, you know, lack of real, you know, facility and um, ability to do that. And also um, they have so much pressure on their food sources. So a lot of the small islands I've been working in, their um, sea levels rising, they can't grow food in the ground like they used to. Um, their fisheries have collapsed because of the commercial fishing um, there's usually us, you know, in the developing world who are actually taking a lot of that fish, um, you know, to, to eat for ourselves. And so and they're left with no food. And so they're there having to rely on packaged food and drink um, coming into their islands so they can survive. And then they've got nowhere to put that plastic waste. Where, so, where's a good example of this place that you're talking about? Yeah, so this is happening all across the Pacific Islands. So Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, Kiribati. Um, I've been working a lot in those islands, but you also see it in the Caribbean. So of those Caribbean islands, um, lots of them sit in the top 10 of users of plastic per capita. Um, and I really think that is because they're so reliant on importing packaged food and drink to survive because they can't grow it anymore on their own islands. Um, so a lot of these places have a much bigger challenge in the first place um, because they have more plastic, um, but also without the systems in place to deal with it. Um, but I wouldn't really like to point my finger and say that they're the ones at fault because, you know, so many of these problems are global. Um, and they don't want to be in that situation. Um, but partly through the way our planet has developed, that's the situation they are currently in. Um, and I really feel like, you know, we need to lead the way with solutions, which we should talk about next, um, you know, so that those countries can follow suit rather than pointing the finger at them to sort it out. Because so many of those countries, you know, take Indonesia, for example, or the Philippines that have you know, they are big contributors of plastic to the ocean. They have huge other challenges that they're trying to solve and really can't spare a lot of um, extra, you know, kind of time and money into fixing this problem. Um, and we do have the same problem in the US, here in Europe, and we're just much better at hiding it, much better at putting it in the ground so that the next generation has to deal with it, um, which is really not the right answer. Right. Um 
it seems like with a lot of these developing countries, what's happened is that the materials economy s switched before the waste management systems could develop with them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So yeah. all of a sudden, you, in a place like Indonesia, you start importing um, millions of plastic bottles every week, and there's nowhere to put them. Yeah, and because people need fresh drinking water, right? You know, which is like an urgent need. But then, exactly, then it has this knock-on effect um, of all this waste plastic with nowhere to go. So clearly, clearly, plastic in one form or another is here to stay. But there are um, small wins that we can that that are being made. What are some of um, those wins that you're seeing happening right now around the world? Yeah, I mean, some of these bans um, and also taxes, usually you get a tax on something first, like a plastic bag that will then lead to a ban later on, um, you know, are some really good examples of these small wins. Um, because, you know, it's all moving in the same direction. And it also raises consciousness. So if you're going into a supermarket um, and thinking, oh, no, I can't use my plastic bag because it's going to cost me five pence here in the UK. Um, and, you know, it makes you think about it. And then when you go to to get a drink, you think, oh, actually, you know, that's a plastic bottle. That's the same problem as the bag. And, and you start to connect these things up. So I think um, those those instances of those taxes and bans are great because they're obviously having a big impact themselves. But they also just get people thinking more about the issue. Um, but then we're also what we really need to start seeing um, is is how companies and and businesses can um be part of the solution because there's some things that we can easily legislate that we've already done but so many more um of these challenges of the way we use plastic today we don't even have the solutions right now for them um and so trying to then legislate for a solution that doesn't exist is, is never going to work and so um at the moment what we're needing to kind of get to the very top of the source of this problem is for designers and material scientists and um, product designers and, and companies to get together and actually figure out what those solutions are before we can then legislate them. Do you have any examples of uh, designers that have been changing their um, materials economy um, for the better? Yeah, so um, you might have recently seen the Adidas project um, where they made a shoe out of ocean plastic. Um, I don't know if that made the headlines in, in the States as well. Um, but that was a really interesting example of um, something where, you know, Adidas saw the problem of, of ocean plastic, saw a lot of that plastic as a resource that they could then use to, to make a shoe. And while it's not the ultimate solution, you know, we don't just want everything made out of ocean plastic <laughs> forevermore because it's still th that shoe would still end up being waste one day. Um, it's a really good step in the right direction, mostly because it's a technology that exists today. We, we have every ability to be able to turn ocean plastic into something like a shoe. So why not do it? Um, but then at the same time, they're, you know, thinking further ahead of, you know, how do we actually potentially design something that's going to remain a shoe forever or once it's finished its journey as a shoe it becomes something else useful okay um, and and this idea of circular economy the idea of designing things so that they can carry on being made into new things rather than ending up as waste and what is stopping every uh city in the United States from banning the plastic bag or uh, applying a tax to it? How does that process usually work? And who who fights against those bans? Yeah, so it's generally um, the, the plastic companies themselves that don't want to see plastic bags being banned um, because it eats into their profits. Um, so it's uh, chemical companies, you know, driven by oil companies, um, they're the ones that this is really bad news for. Um, and so any government that's not able to kind of detangle themselves from that power, <laughs> then um, they're going to struggle to make a ban on it. Are there any com companies uh, specifically that you can point out that are um, 
some of the biggest ones that that fight uh, to keep plastic in our ecosystem at all costs? Um, not that I can sort of. I mean, there's the big the big kind of chemical companies that I know of, but I wouldn't like to say they're necessarily the ones fighting against it because I'm I'm really not sure. Okay. Um, yeah, could could probably find out though. Yeah, please um, do. I'm um, I'm interested in doing a, a micro documentary on plastics, and I think that that's a really interesting crux yeah. in the story. And to actually can... actually look at some of the people who are who legislate um, to or, or people who lobby to keep plastics um, in the materials economy at all costs, I think would I think that that would be a really interesting story. Um, just to kind of figure out who the people are and, and what the reasons are for doing it and how much it eats into their profits to have uh, a tax put on a bag. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I can think of um, there was a situation um, where um, a campaigner was um, taken to court by um, one of these plastic companies. Um, I just wouldn't like to say which one I think it is without checking for sure. Okay. Well, yeah, we can we can follow yeah. up on that. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the no, that it de definitely happens out there. And, um, and you know, there's a lot going on behind the scenes too that's preventing these things getting through. However, there are a lot of um, new bills going through. It seems like every year um, a new um, county that bans the plastic bag um, – makes the headlines it seems like things are heading in the right direction absolutely yeah no i mean you're seeing it now and all over the world yeah do, uh, do you have any do you have any examples that you can think of right now of uh wins that have taken place um yeah i mean there's actually this um amazing new um global plastic matrix that starboard um a company who make uh, paddle boards have put together um which is basically showing all of the different bans and taxes for single use plastic that have happened um all over the world and it is amazing how many pins there are on the map um, yeah. now scattered across every continent yeah, I would imagine for someone like yourself who's been in this world for over a decade, um, it's inspiring to be able to keep score on it to see these little wins. Absolutely, yeah, to, to kind of chart that timeline, which, to be honest, for the first six or seven years of working on this was very slow going. Um, and then in the last year or two, we have seen a sudden spike um, in traction on the issue. Yeah, it seems like that has taken place. There was kind of a critical mass after a number of documentaries and just enough people spoke out about it that it, it kind of entered into the minds of people. And I agree with you. I think that when um, people are confronted at the grocery store, that is a really good um, point of entry to get the issue into people's minds. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um Fantastic. Um, so beyond uh, bringing your own coffee cup to get your coffee and bringing your own bag to the grocery store and making these individual choices, how would you recommend people take the first steps if they want to get more involved or take the next steps if they want to get more involved um, yeah. in, in solving plastic pollution? Sure. Yeah. As you said, there's so many things that we can do on an individual basis. And I think sometimes we don't realize how much there is that we can do. Um, but, you know, just in how we shop um, is, is one of the, the those kind of biggest ways to, to think about eliminating that plastic. Um, and also just using less. Um, sounds really simple, but so so often we think we need something and actually it is just consuming resource that, that we don't necessarily need. Um, but in terms of stepping up the game, I always ask people to think about what their superpower is. What is the thing that they do well, you know, their skill, something they really enjoy, and then find the point that it intersects with this issue of ocean plastic. Um, because the more I look at the solutions that we have and how to solve this problem, the more I realize that there's not one answer um, and there's not an answer that um, – the scientists are going to solve. Um, but it really needs this very multidisciplinary approach to solving it. And 
you know, if you're a chemist, then there's amazing things going on um, within green chemistry, looking at biodegradable materials. Um, if you're um, an engineer, then there's some amazing things going on at the moment to do with actual cleanup and um, trying to actually get some of this waste material out of the environment or a product designer it's probably obvious <laughs> you can try and design products that aren't disposable um if you're an educator then there's so much that we need to do with educating the next generation um or you know anyone really in our workplace or in our community um if you're into policy um then there's a huge amount of work that we can do there and and it's really a case i think of fi finding out what it is that you you love and what you're good at and and looking for the place on the spectrum um that you can have an impact if I wanted to bring this conversation of plastic pollution up with a group of friends or my family, how the hell do I do it without sounding like the proselytizing activist who everyone hates? <laughs> um, yeah, it is a good question. Um, I mean, I think leading by example is one of the strongest things you can do you know and if you're there um you know just kind of practicing what you preach then it'll definitely filter around into your friends and family um i a few years ago for my whole family bought them all a reusable stainless steel water bottle for their christmas presents and none of them would have thought of using one before um, and you know once they had one one that they liked um they they'd never use anything else now um, so there are these kind of various ways we can make it kind of fun rather than preachy um, to the people around us. Um, but, you know, things like doing beach cleanups and, and, and getting outdoors are, are great as well because, you know, it's, it's a day at the beach and then you're, you know, you're picking up plastic along the way. But, but you're also getting outside with some friends and having a good time. And just to bring up the conversation, if someone is curious and they're they're looking to learn more, what would you say are the initial points? Because you've had more conversations about plastics than most. What would you say are the initial points that are most effective in reaching people? Um, I think this idea that plastic is a material that's designed to last forever and we make things that are designed to be used once and thrown away that often chimes with people because it's something they'd never thought of before. But once you do look at it like that, you kind of think, oh, yeah, that's just makes no sense. And I don't want to look stupid. And actually using a single use plastic bag to carry your groceries home and then throwing it out is actually pretty stupid. Um, so so getting getting across that idea um, uh, is definitely key. Um, I mean, that there's all sorts of statistics out there, too. Um, the fact that eight million tons of plastic leaves land and enters our oceans every year. Um, but I don't know, it depends how you work, really. For me, I, I don't think that statistics actually change people's behavior. Um, I think it's more about, um, you know, understanding the issue and then understanding um, something, a solution that can really help. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this with me, Emily. Where can people get in touch with you and where can people um, take the next steps to, to get involved in this issue? Yeah, so um, my website is emilypenn.co.uk. Um, so that's a great way to get in touch with me and what I'm up to. Um, and then the organization I'm currently working on is um, xexpedition.com. So that's the word expedition with two X's, um, which is this series of voyages around the world looking at the issues. There's lots of information um, on that website there, as well as a toolkit, which is coming in the next couple of weeks um, to help people with ideas on what they can do in their local community about the issue. Fantastic. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm a fan. <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. That's our show, everyone. I'm going to play out with a song by one of our listeners. This is by Kevin Kraft, and the song is called Mind's Eye. I will link to Kevin's band page in the show notes on my website, kyle.surf. Um, got some episodes coming out in the days ahead with Liz Clark. Um, met up with her at the Global Wave Conference and a few other fascinating humans. 
So watch out for those. As always, you can get in touch with me on my website, kyle.surf, to give feedback on the show, recommendations for new guests, or just email me to say what's up. I love hearing from all of you because you're interested in the same weird shit as me. So have a great rest of your day, and I'll see you soon. Yeah.